This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Touchstone. <laughs> Silver and gold. Well, what do you think of our friend Cornelius? Seems all he thinks about is silver and gold. Silver and gold, silver and gold. Everyone wishes for silver and gold. How do you measure its worth? Just by the pleasure it gives here on earth. Silver and gold, silver and gold means so much oh, more. Oh, lives. How you delighted our childhood hearts every Christmas until we got all old and bitter and Scrooge-like. In case you were always bitter and Scrooge-like, or you're just too young, we'll clue you in. Those were the lyrics from the song Silver and Gold, written and performed by the late, great Burl Ickle Ivanhoe Ives. Yep, that was his name. For the 1964 television Christmas special, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But though the special was a childhood staple of ours, and we love it. Boy, was Burl Ives ever wrong. About everything. Even about the prospector Yukon Cornelius. But depending on which version of the special you saw, you'd never know it. If you're unfamiliar with the stop-motion animation classic produced by Rankin-Bass Productions before they were called Rankin-Bass, we'll explain. Briefly, we promise, because this episode is actually a follow-on from the last episode about coins and currency, and it is, specifically, about how we measure the worth of silver and gold, and who exactly wished for it in ancient times and why, and where they found it. But first, let's clear the reputation of poor, maligned Yukon Cornelius. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was an animated take on the poem of the same name, written in 1939 and eventually turned into a popular Christmas song by the writer Robert L. May's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks. It tells a rather extended version of the Rudolph story. Donner, lead member of Santa Claus's Flying Reindeer Sled Team, and his wife have a bouncing baby reindeer named Rudolph, who is born with an unusual condition. His nose glows bright red. His parents try to conceal this abnormality, but eventually it comes to light. Get it? And he becomes an outcast. Rudolph befriends the only elf at the North Pole who doesn't want to make toys, Hermie. He wants to become a dentist. They run away, seek their fortune, and find acceptance, get stranded in the Arctic, get attacked by a yeti, also known as a bumble, and are rescued by an Arctic prospector named Yukon Cornelius, who has an odd habit of tasting his pickaxe after plunging it in the snow in search of silver and gold. As if he can taste it. Except... Funny thing is, Yukon Cornelius isn't actually looking for silver or gold. After our heroes meet the prospector, the narrator, voiced by Ives, breaks into the story to condemn him as greedy, only thinking of silver and gold. 
then he breaks into a song about how silver and gold are actually really pretty and silver and gold decorations are really pretty on Christmas trees and how silver and gold make him happy, which is what makes the metal so valuable. Except in the original production, it is revealed in the end that Yukon Cornelius wasn't looking for silver and gold at all. He was actually looking for peppermint deposits. And at the end of the film, he discovers a large vein of the confection at the North Pole and starts mining away. But after the initial release of the special, that scene was deleted. Now, it was reinstated in some of the video releases starting in 1998, but still remains missing from the film in most TV airings. So poor Yukon Cornelius continues to endure Burl Ives' unfounded accusations of unadulterated greed for precious metals. But let's put that aside now and talk about gold, silver, currency, and just why those precious metals are considered so valuable. And let's start by looking at the history of the two metals. As far as we can determine from the archaeological record, gold was first discovered, refined, and used about 6,000 years ago, in 4000 BCE. The oldest major discovery of gold was found on the shore of the Black Sea in modern-day Bulgaria, near the present city of Varna. But other artifacts of gold were found in Egypt and Mesopotamia. And it's no accident that the earliest gold deposits were found near water. Because the first gold wasn't mined at all, it came from sand. And we know this because the Egyptians were very good record keepers. And they were also gold experts. In fact, Egypt was the center of gold production until around the start of the first century CE. Anyway, reliefs dating back to about 2300 BCE from Egyptian sites provide an early instruction for the production of gold. And it shows us that the Egyptians first obtained their gold from alluvial deposits. What does that mean? Well, it's one of the places where you find gold in its natural state. Basically, there are three sources of gold in Earth. You've got your primary gold, your alluvial gold, and your alluvial gold. And believe it or not, we've only recently discovered some of this, as in, since 2007. So look, gold is an element. It's the 79th element on the periodic table. And that's a pretty high number, chemically speaking. See, that number represents the number of positively charged protons at the core of every atom of gold. And those protons really don't like to get close to each other. You know, like charges repel. The thing is, though, once protons get super duper close to each other, other forces take over and hold them together, provided they stay at just the right distance from each other. Those forces are called the strong force, which is a consequence of a branch of physics called quantum chromodynamics. And yes, that means measuring the way colors move. But that's not really what's happening at all. The color involved in strong nuclear interactions is just an analogy. And we're not going to try to explain it all here. Maybe some other time. Suffice to say that protons don't like to get close to each other at all. But if you can get them close, they stay really, really close. Provided there aren't too many of them. And the perfect number seems to be 26. And 26 protons gives you iron. 
And iron is, as a result, about the most stable you can get. But making anything with more than one proton is very tricky. You have to overcome that initial electromagnetic repulsion and get the protons close enough to start sticking together. And the only way to do that is to supply a tremendous amount of pressure and a tremendous amount of energy. Like what happens in the very heart of stars. And that's called nuclear fusion because literally the nuclei at the center of each atom are fusing together with one another. The point is, all of the gold on Earth, and literally every other element on Earth, was formed in the heart of a now-dead star that exploded and blew all its stuff out into the universe. And some of that star corpse dust is made of gold. Now, one of the many things that makes gold valuable is that it is not particularly reactive. Gold likes to stick to itself. Mostly, there are exceptions. So there were bits of gold spread throughout the earth, and various processes, the melting of rock, the dissolution of minerals and water, and so on, would free the gold and allow it to clump up. And eventually, seismic processes would push the clumps of gold to the surface. And that's pretty much where your primary gold deposits come from. They are chunks of gold clumped together and mixed with other minerals and metals found on or near the surface. As we noted though, gold doesn't react easily with other stuff. What it does do is dissolve. So imagine you have this chunk of rock with some gold in it along with other minerals, and then rain starts to fall. The water, especially if it contains trace minerals that make it slightly acidic, starts to dissolve or break up the other minerals. Or it seeps between the minerals and then freezes in the winter and cracks them apart. What happens to the gold? Well, it gets carried away by the water. Or not. An alluvial deposit is a bit of gold that has broken from a primary gold source and been left to sit until someone finds it. An alluvial deposit is gold that has been carried away by water and is either still dissolved in the water or else has been deposited in the sand on the shore of the river or has been dissolved or deposited in the ocean. The upshot of all this is that if you have a river or two nearby, or a sea, and the water source feeding them happens to be near some primary gold deposits, there's gold in that there river, or sea, or in the sand on the shore. And if you carefully sift the water or sand because the gold is so much heavier than other minerals, you end up with gold dust, which you can then melt together into gold. And for a long time, that's where Egyptians got their gold. The Egyptians loved gold. It was pretty and yellow and never lost its luster. It came from the same fertile river that kept them fed, and it looked a lot like the sun. It was also pretty hard to come by and found only in small quantities. So it's pretty easy to assume that the stuff came from their gods. But the gold wasn't just pretty. It was also extremely easy to work with. It was soft. It could be molded, it could be melted pretty easily, and it could be beaten into very flat, flexible sheets. And so the Egyptians used the stuff decoratively and as a symbol of wealth, status, and power. By contrast, silver was discovered much later. Now, silver ended up on Earth the same way as gold, and it has some similar properties. And silver is more common than gold. It requires a measly 47 protons instead of a whopping 79. 
But silver isn't as commonly found deposited in sand or dissolved in water. It pretty much has to be mined from primary deposits. And that's why silver only appears in the archaeological record starting about 4,000 years ago in 2000 BCE. And it was primarily found in Greece and the Near East. See, there's some obstacles to mining primary deposits of gold and silver. Obviously, you have to find the deposits first. Now, fortunately, they tend to occur in veins. That's because molten fluids containing those metals tend to intrude through cracks in the Earth's crust before they eventually cool and harden. But those fluid intrusions are a bit of a mess. They contain lots of different stuff, and that stuff all tends to clump together. And this is especially true of silver. Silver likes to clump with copper, gold, and lead. When silver and gold clump together, they make electrum. And that's why the first Lydian coins were electrum because there was no good refining process that could separate the gold from the silver. Mining silver in Greece was also dangerous because the silver was mixed with lead. And lead can be very toxic to humans if they spend a lot of time exposed to it, especially if they breathe powdered lead. Now, the Greeks didn't know precisely why this was. They didn't know from heavy metal toxicity. But they knew silver miners tended to get sick a lot and die young. Fortunately, the problem was solved with slaves. Eventually, various people developed a process of melting the gold, silver, and other metals, and using salts to separate the gold from the silver and from everything else. The Egyptians actually worked this out as early as 2000 BCE, but other nations took longer to catch on, and eventually, coins of pure gold and pure silver became the standard. And different nations had different standards. For example, Middle Eastern and African kingdoms like Egypt, Persia, Carthage, and so forth tended to prefer gold because gold was more readily available than silver. The Greeks and the Romans preferred silver, which was more readily available in southern, central, and eastern Europe. Actually, in 482 BCE, Athens enjoyed a major windfall and became the richest of the Greek city-states because of a massive deposit of silver that was discovered nearby. At its height, 20,000 slaves mostly captured enemy soldiers, worked the mine. And later on, as various empires spread into the Iberian Peninsula, where modern-day Spain and Portugal now sit, they discovered rich deposits of both gold and silver and could mine their metal of choice. And because medieval Europe followed on from the Roman standard, and because Spain was occupied by the Moors of the Muslim empires starting in about 700 CE, most medieval currency was silver, not gold. And honestly, for a long time in the early Middle Ages, currency was a rare thing. Land was the more valuable commodity. And then the stuff that could be grown from that land. After the fall of Rome, the barter system, which we described last week, saw a strong resurgence. And as political power ended up completely decentralized and held in the hands of local warlords who would eventually become the landlords of the early feudal system, and they weren't particularly interested in minting coinage, currency was a pretty rare medium of exchange. And the currency that was used was pretty badly refined compared to the standards of the ancient Romans. Hence why we poked fun at the idea of medieval adventurers carrying around pockets full of gold and silver coins in a medieval world of adventure and freely using them. 
Oh, sure, they'd recover a lot of ancient silver and gold coins in their travels that they plundered from ancient ruins or had been sacked from ancient empires, but it'd be hard to use them. Of course, as society started to urbanize in the middle to late medieval period, currency took off again. So we only point this out as a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing. Apart from the intrinsic value of gold and silver as pretty metals and being obviously of divine origin, why were those metals considered valuable? And why are they still considered valuable? Well, some of it has to do with the chemical properties. Both are pretty permanent. They don't break down readily. Gold doesn't tarnish or oxidize, and silver only tarnishes if it comes into contact with sulfur, and they are soft and easy to work. Once you purify them, they can be beaten into coins pretty easily and engraved. But the main reason the metals are valuable is because of their rarity. Gold and silver, as noted, aren't easily formed elements. They are formed in small quantities in the aging hearts of dying stars, and then blasted out into space when the star goes into death spasms. If you could gather all of the silver ever mined on Earth into one cube it would be about 175 feet, or 50 meters, on a side. It'd cover just half a city block and stand about 14 stories tall. All of the gold on Earth gathered into the same cube would be just 60 feet, or 20 meters, on a side. That would fit about two suburban middle-class homes side by side in its base and stand about five stories tall, and that is literally all the gold and silver ever found on Earth throughout the entirety of human history. So that's why we use gold and silver for currency and why it's valuable. But how is its value measured? Well, it's not measured in the joy it brings to people, as Burl Ives suggested. Measuring the value of gold and silver, especially gold and silver coins, has been a problem for much of human history. And that's because humans are always trying to get away with stuff. The problem is, even if your country has a strong central authority and establishes standards for the sizes and weights of different silver and gold coins, it all falls apart the minute you want to trade with someone from a different country who may have different standards. Sure, it should be easy enough to just weigh a coin of pure silver and pure gold and determine its value that way. But remember, it's hard to purify gold and silver. Those metals are often found mixed with other metals, and they melt readily and are easily engraved. So an unscrupulous person could even melt some coins together, mix in some impurities, engrave fake marks on them, and change the weight. The weight alone doesn't help you if you don't know how pure the stuff is you're working with. So you need a way to determine the metal's fineness. That's the term for the purity of a precious metal. Now, if you're using gold, there's a pretty easy test for purity. You just need some aqua fortis. That's Latin for strong water. And it's just an ancient name for acid. See, gold doesn't react readily with much of anything. Put a drop of acid on it and nothing will happen. You'll just have wet gold. But if there's anything mixed in with the gold, anything that does react with acid the acid will start to fizz. So an assayer, one who determines the value of things, who wanted to test a gold coin, just needed to get their hands on some acid. 
but acid wasn't as commonly available in all areas as Dungeons and Dragons might have you think. And the acid test, yes, that's the origin of the phrase we mentioned at the start of last week's episode. The acid test didn't work so well if you had other non-reactive metals mixed in with gold. Like gold and silver, say. Or silver and lead. And so, we had to work out another assaying tool. And there's some argument as to who came up with it first. Some folks say it was first used in the Near East. Others give credit to the early Indus Valley civilizations that live near present-day India. And others say it was the Greeks. We can't say for sure. But we can describe the tool. It was a touchstone. A touchstone is a piece of black, polished slate or a similar piece of stone. Slate was primarily used because of its dark color and because it could be polished to a very smooth finish. Except it wasn't really smooth. It retained a very fine grittiness. Fine enough that if you ran a piece of precious metal on it, it would scrape some off and leave a bright line on the slate. Kind of like a chalkboard, which is why chalkboards can be made of slate. Now, the fine line of powdered metal had a very characteristic color. Pure gold and pure silver leave very bright, distinct lines. And the duller or more off-color the line, the more impurities were mixed with the gold and silver. Traditionally, an assayer would wear rings of pure gold and silver. When he wanted to test a gold or silver coin for purity, he'd rub it on the touchstone and then rub one of his rings on the touchstone and he'd compare the lines. For good measure, he might also drop a bit of aqua fortis on the unknown line to test for reactive impurities, and in doing so, he'd test the purity of the coin. The fineness. And that's why today, the term touchstone is used as something against which quality can be measured. Once the coin was pronounced pure, it could be weighed, and that weight set the value of the coin. Today, Jewelers and assayers have a number of ways to test the fineness of a metal, but many still use both touchstones and acid tests, especially in smaller pawn shops and the like. And we measure the fineness of metal in carats, except in the U.S. where we measure them in carats, which are not to be confused with carats and have nothing to do with carats. But they do have everything to do with carobs. And they even have something to do with keratin. But to explain all of that we need to discuss other shiny treasures adventurers like to trade in. So next week, we'll talk about gems and jewels. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.